Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. You know, M&A, it's you know, Merger Monday. It's back today. We've got a couple of pretty big deals, including Goodyear Tire buying Cooper Tire, which I thought was a pretty interesting uh, deal there. There's, I didn't, you know, there's still deals to be done out there in uh, 2020, despite the pandemic was a big year for M&A. Let's get the latest. We do that with Rob Brown. He's a managing director and CEO of North America for Lincoln International based in Chicago. Rob, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, when I was a banker, it was all about hopping on a plane, going to see companies, see clients, get deals done. That's how deals really got done. So I'm wondering, in a world of pandemic, how are you guys doing business. Talk to us about that. Well, it, it pretty incredibly, uh, the M&A world went uh, much more virtual, in some cases totally virtual, uh, with very little interruption, because I, I agree with you. Uh, when, when the pandemic uh, really forced the economy to shut down, um, the M&A market shut down for a period of time, and they went from kind of a slow thaw at the end of the second quarter to the floodgates opening up when you got into the third and fourth quarter. Um, but specific to your question, you know, overnight everybody had to become very comfortable with some form of uh, video technology. A lot of due diligence was moving virtual anyway through virtual data rooms. But um, you know, it became clear that the the need to put money to work by private equity groups, the need to continue to grow by strategic acquirers, um, these companies were not going to let the inability to meet in person get in their way of getting deals done. In fact, we had several deals in 2020 where the buyer never saw the company, never met anybody <laughs> in person. They were done totally virtually. And yet, um, 2020 was a pretty hot year for deals. I mean, it wasn't far off what we saw um, pre-COVID. What do you expect from 2021? Uh, I, I expect it to continue. And, and if you look at 2020, you know, when you look at coming into 2020 and you, um, we have an annual growth conference we do at the end of the year. And at the end of 2019, we surveyed hundreds of private equity groups and said, what's your number one goal coming into 2020? Their number one goal was to put capital to work at a faster clip. So you came into the year with that as your goal. You had several months where there was an inability to put capital to work. And so what happened at the end of the year, and as you know, why the M&A market picked up, is anybody that had a good COVID story to tell, there were investors willing to listen to the story and invest in it. And that's continued into this year. And so we're still in- By the way, Rob, where, where is all that money coming from? Is this stimulus money that's flooding the market? No, I mean, I, if I look at the average premium last year, it rose back to bonkers, like well over what we saw in the three years before that. Yeah, I, I think where a lot of it's coming from are institutional investors with interest rates at essentially zero, right? It, people are more willing to put money into private equity funds. Look at SPACs. Look at the amount of SPACs that have been raised in the last year. It's, it's mind-boggling. So I, I think the alternative asset class of which private equity, debt fund, and even SPACs, with interest rates where they're at and the returns that these funds have consistently driven, they're able to continue to raise money. And then you put on top of that the amount of cash sitting on the balance sheets of the Fortune 500. There is still more capital that wants to be put to work to buy companies than there are companies to buy. And when you have that imbalance, you're going to have a high level of activity at high values. So 
Interesting. You, t- you mentioned SPACs, Rob. Talk to us about how you as an M&A banker think about SPACs. I mean, it's, if I'm a, a business owner, that's another exit for me, if you will. Um, how do you talk to your clients about SPACs? Uh, it is. Well, first of all, we're talking to them more and more about SPACs because the number of SPACs and the amount of money going into SPACs uh, is, is incredible. And, and so for the right seller, it's a, it's a, it's a good alternative. If you're a business that's looking to sell, you need additional growth capital. You can access the public markets afterwards. Um, it can be the right seller and they can pay high prices too, because if you, if you look at their cost of capital, you look at the expectation of kind of the, the post trading in the public markets, they've performed well. So it is a, it is another alternative for the right seller it can take a little bit longer, right? There's a little more regulatory hurdles to go through. So if, if speed and certainty are really important to you, a SPAC may not be the right uh, alternative. However, if you uh, accessing public equity and public debt post a deal is important to you, they could be a very good buyer. Are you On the other hand, are you making sure like your nut is safe and you have a bug out bag next to the bed? Because if people are willing to give... Um, you know, Kaepernick, a couple hundred million dollars in a SPAC, this market may not last much longer. Yeah, I, I, I personally, I don't know how all that SPAC money is going to be put to work. But I think the institutional investors that are putting money to these, they're not, they're not dumb. I think what they're saying is, well, interest rates are zero. If I put the money into the SPAC, the SPAC has two years to find a company. If they don't find a company, I get the money back. And, you know, I didn't lose a lot of interest. The issue will be is if they feel pressure to put the money to work and they stretch and do uneconomic things. So real quickly, Rob, just give us your thoughts. What are some of the hot sectors we should be looking at for M&A activity this year? So, you know, from our perspective, um, and, you know, we had, a, we had a record year last year. We have a huge backlog coming to this year. The two areas of the firm where we're seeing the most activity broadly are in technology and in healthcare, where you have the most secular growth, the most need for capital. Although I will say, with that said, if I look at our industrial group, our consumer group, our business services group, they all have record backlogs, but, but as a firm, as a just level of activity, um, technology and healthcare um, are, are areas where we're seeing tremendous growth. And some of that secular growth, some yeah. of it's bounce back bounce back from particularly on the healthcare services side where, where, you know, things may have slowed down and now there's a, there's kind of a makeup. Right on Rob. Thanks so much for your insight. It was great having you on the program. Rob Brown is managing director and he runs North America as CEO for Lincoln international. Now I want to bring in Kevin Tynan. He's our senior autos analyst at Bloomberg intelligence. And I feel kind of guilty, Kevin, because I think Paul is more excited for the Mustang Mach <laughs> One than I am. Um, he's definitely put his down payment uh, at his local dealer already, waiting for his car to arrive. Is he going to be disappointed? No, I don't think so. Uh, I think as I, as I was uh, looking at the numbers, you know, the the internal combustion Mustang might not be that much, you know, more long for this world. Though, um, you know, I, I could see that drivetrain. You know, being in that nameplate all the way across, you know, and not just this sort of SUV thing that they're making, but even into the sports cars over time. So, Kevin, you, you've told me and, and others, you know, over the years, you know, you know, where Detroit really makes its money is on trucks uh, in the U.S. here. So is the EV market a niche market until the Ford decides it wants to put a F-150 EV out on the market? I think so. Yeah, and 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 the other thing too, Paul, you got to remember is that there's really been no automaker, 
you know, other than Tesla, advancing the EV narrative at all. So, you know, when Cybertruck starts to come for that full-size pickup segment and Ford and General Motors and whoever else have an answer for that and they actually want to sell the product, you're going to get a lot of marketing might behind the technology that just hasn't been there yet, right? Nobody's really talking about EVs other than, you know, media and Tesla fans. But, you know, that's a lot of money that will come behind, right? Because if, if you think about it, full-size pickup is the largest segment in the U.S. by revenue, not by accident. It's because it's what's marketed to us. And I think if you get some of that money going after different segments or different drivetrain technologies, you'll get a similar result as what you got with pickup. I, I mean, I hope they're full-size, though, because I look at the Rivian pickup truck and I look at the Cybertruck. Um, I think the Bollinger is probably the coolest electric option that's coming out. None of them are really big. You know, when I... I want to move back to America because I want to buy a giant truck. I want a Ram power wagon. You know, I want something legit, maybe with a 6.7 liter turbo diesel. You can't get that from these EV millennials. No, but the reality is, though, Matt, is that, you know, I I just had a 250 Super Duty that I was testing. And, (laughs) you know, I took it to the used record store in Princeton and I couldn't get in the parking garage, you know, so... <laughs> so you know you you have to there there's a time and a place for that kind of vehicle and there's a lot of the United States where it is appropriate but you know it's it's going to be difficult considering congestion and, and infrastructure the way it is now for that to be you know the daily driver for most people. Matt you're was, was, was it a tremor? Was it a tremor Kevin? The uh, tremor no, pack? It was, it was just a regular super duty. Oh uh, okay. Matt you're you're in Europe, you're in Berlin. Are there any pickup trucks? In Europe, there are, but they're they're far, uh, few and far between. You know, I um, would love to get one here, but they just are too big to fit through yeah. your your average road. They just won't fit through the, the street. <laughs> hey, Kevin, you know, that, let's... And that's a that's a really interesting point too, because you know, as as Ford and General Motors, you know, Ford especially talking about going full EV and you know making EVs for Europe. You know, that's been a problem over the years, even with internal combustion, is that the, the, the vehicle architecture that works in Europe doesn't work in the United States. You know, so where Ford was doing small cars for Europe, that never really translated here. And that's why you've seen those companies just get out of those regions altogether. So it's going to be interesting to see how to sort of globalize the platform where it works in Europe, where you have congestion and infrastructure issues that are very different than what we buy here in the United States. Man, I hope we get the Bronco over here. I hope Ford doesn't (laughs) jip me on this because, you know, ever since they started this one Ford strategy and said they were going to bring everything over here, but there's no uh, there's no Raptor over here. You know, the F-150 Raptor has long been my favorite car of all time. Um, I'm excited for the Bronco to displace that when they finally put a V8 in it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, you know, again, and that's the, that's the inconsistency across the regions, right? You know, and, and historically, you know, fuel prices there versus here. And it just, you can't have a global product that works everywhere. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if that means it, it's EVs that work everywhere. But I, I still think you're going to need bigger vehicles, um, you know, to work in the U.S. that is going to be difficult to uh, sell in, in Europe. All right, so Kevin, I'm looking at the auto stocks, Ford, GM, and whatever the new uh, Chrysler is. Up Stellantis. 40, <laughs> still, uh, yeah, whatever. All right, 40 to, 50%, 40 to 50% over the trailing 12 months. What's the, what's the bull case here? 
Yeah, I think, you know, they're, they're, what you're going to get or what you would start to think would happen would be that either the Tesla, Neo, you know, Rivians of the world would come back down to earth in terms of valuation, or you're going to get the legacy automakers who have global engineering, design, production, distribution, after sales, scale already in place will get recognized you know, for that. And I think Volkswagen is a perfect example is that, you know, if they hit their 2021 EV target, they'll sell 500,000 units about, you know, 18 months after really starting or committing to it, you know, and Tesla took eight years to, to get there. So I think that when the big automakers, they start, they will start to have to get recognized for that ability to do the same thing. Okay, when when the time comes and profitability yep. is there, we can do EVs in volume. By the, way, by the way, how sick will it be if VW spins off Porsche? Because that is a unit they own that is worth more than their entire market cap. Yeah, well, the, you know, valuations yep. are a little funny right now, so... Um. <laughs> All right, Kevin, we'll be in the outlook for that, but Kevin Tynan, Senior Autos Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. We appreciate that as always. Now, let's learn more about what's going on in markets. As you heard from Greg, stocks are down. And the reason I thought was that um, rates are up, but they're not really. Rates are pretty flat right now. Um, the big gainers that we see in these markets are really the metals and other commodities. Let's bring in Sarah Ponzak. She's a Bloomberg uh, cross-asset reporter for us. And um, Sarah, is it is it really the rates, even though right now they're still pretty flat, um, that have pushed stocks back a little bit? It, it does seem to be the case. I mean, overnight, we did see 10-year yields make a run towards 140. We did have Christine Lagarde of the ECB come out and say that the ECB is closely monitoring longer-term nominal bond yields. And oh, that good. is just around That's the such time. good news. Right, such I love, good news. I love when the central bankers <laughs> say, we are doing our job. We're still at work. <laughs> We're still, we're still working, even though there's a global pandemic, but that's really what reverse yields. But we have to really take into context the move that we have seen over the past couple of weeks. If we just look at 10-year nominal yields, for example, we've seen a run of about 23 basis points or so. That's the fastest monthly rise since early 2018. At the same time, if you look at real yields right now, yes, granted, still very deeply negative. But 10-year real yields now stand at negative 81 basis points. That is very very close to punching through levels that we saw a few months ago to become the highest since the summer. And this compares to if we look where we closed out the year or where we started the year on January 4th, we had a real 10-year yield of negative 1.117%. So we have really seen... By the way, how do you... So how do you compute that exactly? You take the 10-year yield, 1.34%, and then you subtract what? CPI, X food and oil? So this is subtracting out tips uh, to get a sense of inflation expectations going forward. So this calculation would subtract out 10-year tips. Um, And that is really the case. I mean, we are seeing inflation expectations rise. Granted, there is still an argument over whether or not we are going to see true rampant inflation. But when we also have further discussion, at least in the United States, of another multi-trillion dollar fiscal package, and then more stimulus down the line. I mean, people talking of another $3 trillion package down the line. And you also have an economy that is regaining its footing. You have a vaccine rollout that is going pretty well now around the globe. 
you have to wonder what happens when you have an economy that is doing well on its own. You also have plenty of cash flush in the system. Well, some are starting to believe now that we will see inflation start to rise. Yes, sir. When you think about the reflation trade that folks are increasingly talking about and just inflation in general coming back into the economy, I look to the G. Uh, GLCO screen on the Bloomberg terminal, the global commodities, and you know whether it's energy, whether it's metals, whether it's agricultural products, you see you know double-digit increases across pretty much across the board on a year-to-date basis. That's a pretty good indication that uh, we're seeing some inflation coming back into this economy. Oh, certainly. It's not just being reflected in break-even inflation expectations or in the bond market. We're seeing it reflected in commodities front and center. You think about copper prices, for example, over the weekend, rising above $9,000 for the first time in nine years and knocking on the door, really, of all-time highs that were set back in 2011. At the same time, I look at my screen right now, and we have an OPEC meeting coming up next week. Well, we'll just add to the fun. Uh, But I look at oil prices right now, WTI now above $61 a barrel, Uh, Brent prices $64.64 right now. Which is amazing, which is amazing because now we're starting to see supplies come back online in the Texas area, right? So now you're going to start to see supply come back. But I guess the bet that traders are making is that demand is going to come back even stronger. That's exactly the case. And while, while the supply side of the equation has certainly had an effect over the past year, when you think about what has really driven oil markets over the past year, it has been the demand side of the equation, especially when we saw oil prices go negative. I mean, that feels like years ago now, considering we're looking at, at uh, crude prices but back above But I will never six, forget it. Right. Never forget never it. never uh, forget. What a moment. But it seems like years ago, when you now have crude prices above $60, a barrel and you have Goldman Sachs saying that we could see crude prices above $70 a barrel in the coming months. We had a uh, Marco Papich, he's from Clock Tower uh, on our podcast last Friday and he said he's expecting us to reach $80 a barrel in a time not too far away. So when you think about how far we've come, and yes, we have seen some demand recover, uh, the expectation is that as the vaccine rollout goes smoothly, as we start to hit critical mass, you get that feel of herd immunity, that people will feel more comfortable. I mean, God forbid going on planes or getting on a cruise ship. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden, we will see global oil demand not just recover, but you're also going to be, see this immense global economic recovery that's going to see demand just rise further from here. Sarah Ponzak, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it, as always, giving us uh, an update on all of the financial markets. Sarah Ponzak, cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us every day at this time. Matt, I, you know, I, I just think it's – I agree. It's kind of been a demand-driven market there for, for oil. But I kind of feel like when we do get that surging demand, I think the supplies can come right back on the marketplace. Yeah, of course, because there is supply that's been capped. And the, the, the question is, when's the demand going to come, right, Paul? Because we're so much talk about herd immunity. If it comes sooner, we're all going to jump in our cars or jump on a plane sooner as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And again, the Wall Street Journal had uh, this uh, opinion piece over the weekend citing, um, you know, a Johns Hopkins professor talking about herd immunity perhaps as quickly as um, April. And boy, I don't think that's necessarily uh, baked into the marketplace at the moment, but we'll certainly pay attention. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Now, I want to bring in right now a man who manages $1.3 billion out of Indiana, uh, Indianapolis. Um, 
but has, I think, a pretty unique experience in running his company. Greg Hahn is Chief Investment Officer for Winthrop Capital Management. And Greg, I noticed you founded Winthrop in 2007. So that's like a baptism by fire in terms of running an investment business through uh, an incredible recession and out the other side. Do you notice any parallels to what we've just seen with the COVID pandemic? So yeah, a lot of a lot of what thanks Jeff. What, a lot of what we're going through really uh, goes back to uh, the financial crisis of 2008. I founded Winthrop Capital Management. I describe it as the doorstep of the financial crisis because it was literally the end of October of 2007, and you could just feel the the vacuum. It's like the air leaving the room. It was like a vacuum that was being created before everything blew up in in uh, around Valentine's Day in 2008. But yeah, it's it's very similar to uh, the and, and this is where the aggressive monetary policy that we're seeing comes from, is um, the the rescue money that came into the market in 2008 really never left the market, and all we're doing right now is piling on top of it. So, Greg, a lot of folks I think are increasingly concerned about a bubble, uh, a financial bubble here. Whether you look at you know the markets hitting all time highs almost on a daily basis, whether you look at the uh, the proliferation of SPACs, uh, whether you look at some of the trading we saw in some of the you know, GameStops of a few weeks ago, all kind of telltale signs potentially of a market top, a market bubble. How do you think about that? Yeah, and that's a good question. I mean, we, we, you know, the scars go back to 2000 after the dot-com burst. And uh, it's, um, the difference, though, is the money that is the, – the bubble that was created back in 2000 had, didn't have the aggressive monetary policy supporting it. So it was, it was speculative because everybody was piling into the market. I say everybody, but investors were piling into tech stocks, tech stocks and valuations were just ignored. This go-around, we've got not only domestic um, money, both fiscal and monetary stimulus, but we have global monetary and fiscal stimulus going into the financial markets, and it has to find a home. So uh, in aggressive periods of aggressive monetary and fiscal stimulus, we do see extended uh, PE valuations, and that's part of what's being experienced right now is these, um, these valuations are, are really extended. These business models, though, Jeff, they support you know, operating margins that are uh, in excess of 60% operating margins. So the growth rates, when you see layer on 18% growth rates with 60% profit margins, there's room to grow. Is are, are you concerned though? I sense a little bit of an Austrian twinge in your uh, <laughs> statement about about the the money that came in uh, the TARP money yeah. first, and then we got a couple trillion more, and now we're getting a couple trillion more. And you know, does that worry you? That piled up debt, that uh, big yeah. balance sheet at the Fed. Yeah. So the um, the so two things we 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 are living through two experiments. Aggressive monetary policy that goes back to 2008, this is all an experiment. We can't just take this as normal. And two, is we're living through a pandemic. And we've got developed uh, governments of developed countries threw money into the system to help support the economic downturn, and it's worked. Both are experiments, though. So the consequences of that are this elevated level of debt. And now, <clears throat> um, and, and, and economies that are, are, are just recovering. This was all a cost that was... Um, born to make sure that our economies continue to function, to, to mitigate the downturn, uh, wh- whether we can pull it off and transition uh, into a more normalized um, economic paradigm, that's, that's what remains to be seen. So it's going right. to be the next challenge. All right, Greg. So in this market here, again, hitting uh, all-time highs here, where 
are you guys spending your time? Where do you see opportunities? So the opportunities there, I think the opportunities are in three areas. One is China. Um, and that's a longer conversation when we look at Western democracy against the center. I was going to say, it sounds crazy for a Hoosier to say that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's, but it's, when you search the world over and you look at what we've got here in the United States with extended valuations, and you look at what the opportunity is over in China with, um, you know, it's the second largest economy. It, it, it's got a growing middle class, but, you know, it has its own barriers to compete. But uh, when you look at, you know, we looked at corporate earnings last year, you look at Procter & Gamble, Starbucks, their earnings, the reason their earnings held up well in a large part was because of the business they did in China. So that's one area. Second is there's a, still a recovery basket. Even though we've seen, um, a, a, you know, the stock market's done really, really well, there's still areas that are COVID-affected that we think, um, it, it includes gaming, leisure, travel, entertainment, convention. Especially now, everyone's talking about herd immunity. Yeah, well, we had, like, so we added Southwest Air to the portfolio this, um, this last quarter. Um, we think that it's... It, the airlines, I'm not ready to go all in, but there's going to be some growth, and, and, and it's already. GE would be another example um, of, of how to play the recovery. So, but, Greg, I guess uh, maybe 30, 30 <laughs> seconds left here. Are, are you in that uh, rotation trade? Do you feel like the cyclicals are also a place to look? No, we're not. A, I'm, I'm not into that. I, we, we, we buy good companies. We just want to buy really, really good companies and invest alongside of them to, to be able to move in and out. I mean, we, we struggle right now. The, one of the great plays right now is in the commodity markets. We're not commodity yep. investors, but when you look at demand for copper, um, right now, because of what's happening in silver with the 5G rollout, and the just mm. th- that's a real demand. So Freeport McMoran would be something we would be looking at, but it's right. not something that we normally – that's not our sweet spot. Gotcha. Okay. Hey, Greg, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, Greg Hahn, Chief Investment Officer for Winthrop Capital Management based in Indianapolis, uh, giving us his thoughts here as the markets, again, pulling back a little bit today, but uh, you know, making ever higher highs on, in large part, on the reopening trade. And again, the metrics on the pandemic, very supportive right now. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.